Are you or anyone else you know interested in buying or selling a home? How about saving the planet? Climate Change Realty is the only company operating in all 50 states that allows you to create thousands of dollars in donations absolutely for free. Yes, that's right. Our service and your donations are free. Climate Change Realty can connect you with one of the best real estate agents in your city. And because of that connection, a full 25% of your real estate agent's commissions will be donated to a 501c3 nonprofit organization of your choice. Real estate agents earn between 2 to 3% of the final sales price when they help you buy or sell a home. That's at least $500 donated for every $100,000 worth of real estate sold when you find your real estate agent with Climate Change Realty. Visit www.ccrbolder.com today and click Find an Agent to help us transform the real estate market into a battery for the regenerative economy. Welcome to the podcast. Kathy, pleasure to meet you. Thanks so much for taking the time to join me on Changing the Climate. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me, Ethan. It's great to meet you. Yeah, great to meet you. You're very welcome, and you're doing some really essential work, so I'm excited to get into it all. But before we do that, we always love to get the show started with a bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the current moment. Yeah, so uh, so I'm Kathy Mulvey, and uh, I have been doing corporate accountability campaigning for over thirty years now. So I've I've worked on a range of issues from nuclear weapons to tobacco control and public health to corporate control of water and food to uh, corporate accountability and, and business and human rights in conflict-affected areas. And um, I, I, you know, I, I came in to this work um, really uh, as, as someone who was uh, terrified of nuclear weapons and nuclear war, which, you know, is a, an issue, I think, again, high on public concern with this with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and um, and came through that really to see the importance of challenging transnational corporate power um, and and really obstruction of an interference with with democracy um, and how that is harming you know how that particularly harms, people in the global south and uh, black indigenous and people of color communities in the US. So my current work focuses on on climate change and holding the major fossil fuel producers accountable for their outsized role in in driving this crisis. Yeah, no 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 doubt about that. Um why why get involved with these extremely important issues uh to begin with why what drew you to begin working on this stuff yeah i i think um i mean at 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 the core it's really just values right it's um it's the importance of saving the the planet of helping to ensure that that current and future generations can live healthy lives with work that is fairly compensated and with a with self-determination and a say over uh, the, the the policies that affect their lives and 
yeah, I just, uh, I've been really privileged to be able to do this work as, as my paid work um, and, and as a volunteer. Uh, but, you know, there's so many people out there who um, are, are really doing critically important work to, to protect their, their communities, to organize in their workplaces and, and having to uh, do some, you know, do something else to really put food on the table for their families and ensure that they have healthcare. So, um, so yeah, it's been amazing to to have the opportunity to be in organizations that are advocacy organizations that benefit from the support of thousands of of members um Definitely. around the US. How much do you think that values plays into the way people make large life decisions? Cuz I would I would make the argument that it comprises almost the entirety of their their decision making in their lives. So some now that doesn't mean that everyone um, is very ethical, but either their their values, the way they were raised, I think kind of will, will affect all their decisions for the rest of their lives. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. You know, everybody wants to be able to feel like they're making a difference, and um, and we're const you know we constantly make value values judgments um, in figuring out how we navigate in the world, and and we're constantly weighing out conflicting priorities and uh you know i no doubt that the decision makers inside fossil fuel corporations um you know are 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 thinking of what they do in the world as as making positive change um but you know there's certainly um a long track record of of those corporations you know, d- designing, conceiving, and funding campaigns to deceive the public to block action um, on this vitally important important issue. So, um, yeah, I think there 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 is there is a values conflict there. Yeah, and you wonder if uh, they're just used to deception from their childhood, and it's just the way of life that they they see it. Um, very curious topic to get into. Uh, I'm I'm wondering what your work was like um, at EIRS Conflict and Risk Network of Institutional Investors when it comes to speaking people who are looking to make returns and put, put their capital in good places. Yeah, uh, so it's actually it's pronounced IRIS, um, IRIS. and um, <laughs> and Conflict Risk Network and. Conflict Risk Network actually was a, a network of institutional investors that um, that developed um, uh, in response to the genocide in Darfur, Sudan, and investors looking to really avoid complicity in genocide and mass atrocities. And so, um, it, I mean, it's it's you know, it's an interesting. Uh, issue for anyone who has the good fortune to have retirement savings, which so many people in this in this country don't. Um, but you have, um, you know, asset managers like BlackRock and Vanguard. You have public pension funds in, uh, you know, at the state level who are investing for um, teachers and firefighters and you know uh, other folks uh, who 
hope to be able to retire 20, 30 years down the down the line. And I don't think any of us want to be complicit in fueling the climate crisis or um, supporting a genocidal regime. And so what happened um, with that issue was, um, you know, U.S. law actually didn't allow state level pension funds to, or, or U.S. law had to be passed to ensure that state level pension funds could uh, redirect their investments away from sectors that were enriching the um, the regime in in Sudan uh, of Omar al Bashir, and so um, so this law passed, and then uh, at the height of the the movement, twenty eight states then were able to pass um, targeted divestment laws that said, look, we don't want to be investing in companies that are in the weapons sector, military, of course, um, but also oil, also large-scale mining operations, and also power generation, because most people um, in in Sudan were not uh, were not accessing electricity that was being generated. It was fueling the the, the war machine, um, and so that uh, so those laws then. Uh, the institutional investors needed quality research to identify which companies were were exposed in Sudan and operating in those sectors. And of course, U.S. sanctions meant that U.S.-based companies were not directly um, implicated. Uh, but um, it was it was really important work, um, and I think helped to, you know, I think. The investor community is continuing to develop its its toolbox of divestment and and um, you know, and of uh, you know avoiding um, direct involvement and exposure in the worst abuses by corporations, while at the same time using shareholder advocacy um, to through through shareholder proposals and direct engagement of decision makers to really push companies to take into consideration the impact of their policies and practices on human rights, public health, and the environment. Well, I think that's more relevant than ever before to be talking about this now when you take away access to capital, specifically when we were bringing up the the Russia-Ukraine invasion, that will really impact um, their ability to, to do anything uh, globally. So that's why I try to tend to focus most of my time in markets. Can you tell me a bit about the uh, Union of Concerned Scientists? Because I've been meaning to speak to this organization for a while now. So I'm excited to have you here today. Yeah, it's um, it's great to be here. So we are a US-based, science-based uh, advocacy organization. You know, we work on a range of issues from climate and energy to clean transportation to to scientific integrity in democratic decision making, um, food and environment, and the um, and global security issues. Uh, the organization has been around for more than fifty years, and it has we have a, a over uh, half a million supporters, uh, mostly in the U.S. and a network of. Twenty two thousand scientists and other experts who really bring their um, their particular scientific expertise to 
uh, into consideration on decision making on that range of issues. So Union of Concerned Scientists, what exactly are the scientists concerned about? You know, we have data on increased greenhouse gas emissions and global temperature rise. That stuff's unequivocal at this point. I think it's very clear to see just because of the, the pure, the greenhouse effect traps the heat. It stays down. I don't think anyone can debate that. But on the other hand, the actual ecological consequences, which might be obvious depending on what field you study, um, aren't as obvious to the average person. So what is the biggest concern that scientists have surrounding a warming climate? Is there anything as close to unequivocal as the actual increase in greenhouse gas, greenhouse effect kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, there is really no no doubt that we're facing a, a climate crisis at this point and that, uh, and that we need to make swift and deep reductions in emissions and of course um, you know f- fossil fuels and the, and the fossil fuel industry have been driving this crisis for some time so you know I think many people are really feeling the effects of climate change in their daily lives now with extreme storms with uh, you know extreme extreme heat and wildfires so it, it's it's just, becoming um, apparent to us that the actions that were that have been delayed now for too long um, you know are are, um, are 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 making the are making it um, even the more imperative due. yeah yeah and you know it, and and if we had if we had uh, moved in the direction that that science showed us was necessary decades ago, um, the challenges wouldn't be so so steep at this point. So, uh, you know, the the work that I lead is a campaign to hold fossil fuel companies, Exxon Mobil, Chevron, BP, Shell, in particular, accountable for their role in the climate crisis. And the science uh, underlying this work is, is twofold. One is, uh, you know, the, the work that um, this, that our organization has been doing for more than a decade now to, um, to expose and counter efforts by the fossil fuel companies and their surrogates to spread disinformation about climate science and and policy. Um, You know, and and unfortunately, um, we now, you know, we now know that that the, the leaders within these companies knew at least five decades ago of the harms that that burning fossil fuels pose to the global climate. And not only did they uh, not redirect their own business to become energy companies for the late 20th and 21st centuries, they actually deployed, um, you know, they deployed front groups. They um, uh, they sought to hire um, scientists to, uh, you know, to spread the disinformation and, and deception. They, they brought in their trade associations and lobbyists to block climate action that's so necessary. I mean, particularly in, in the U.S., you know, you see a real 
disconnect between what these companies know and what they claim to support and and where they're actually spending their their political contributions and and lobbying so that's so the 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 history and ongoing disinformation and and deception is one really important area um and the other is um really building on it, it's uh being able to quantify the the contributions of particular fossil fuel companies to global warming emissions and to climate impacts. So uh, a lot of this work is grounded in research done by Richard Heady um, to painstakingly go through corporate annual reports and construct a, a data set of the um, of of oil, gas, coal, and cement manufacturing, um, and and thereby be able to publish a, a paper um, in 2014 that found that two thirds of all industrial emissions since the start of the industrial revolution can be traced to just 90 investor and state owned entities. Um, so this was really important Globally? in being able to to quantify the the responsibility of fossil fuel companies for for climate change and since then um, my colleagues have helped to lead research to then build on that data set and quantify contributions to um, the global warming impacts such as global temperature increase. So my colleague Brenda Eckwurzel led a paper published in 2017. Um, and then uh, my colleague Rachel Licker led um, the, the development of a, a study that was published in 2019, looking at uh, quantifying uh, contributions of companies such as ExxonMobil and Chevron to ocean acidification. So um, the the ability of of scientists to um you know to put numbers here and to think about um yes you know their states and 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 governments have responsibility for climate change but corporations do too and uh, and fossil fuel companies that that dug up oil gas and coal and put it into into commerce and have profited handsomely from that um, while knowing the consequences should be should be held accountable and um, and science can help us to do that well i agree and they were probably the first to study it because it was their product so they were probably very interested in the impact it would have on the uh the the planet or just people or just in general they probably were the first ones to come to that and as soon as they come to that conclusion they're like hmm we might lose some money if we stop doing this um, it's really interesting how we talk about the playbooks that, uh, deception campaigns use. We always go back to the idea of the tobacco companies. And, um, so I listened to the two most recent Joe Rogan debates on, um, climate change with a professor from Texas A&M and then Steve, I think it's Coonan who wrote a book about how climate change is not that, not as big a deal as scientists are saying. And what's interesting is that the, uh, the campaign to, have people be less concerned about climate change is not about deny. I mean, I guess people still do deny that climate change even happens, but it's more to 
confuse people and make them question the science in the short term rather than in the long term be like, okay, it's not going to warm because over 50 years, it's going to be undeniable to see. And that's kind of where we're at now that the average temperature has increased. You can't deny that, but you can, you can, you know, be really creative with cognitive tricks and get people to kind of just think, hmm, maybe that's not right. And then I also mentioned in a recent episode how people talk about not trusting scientists because back when Galileo was around that that he was wrong. And I'm like, that's so ridiculous with the peer review literature that we have now to look at things that way. Like, oh, the scientists might not be right because they're they're wrong. I mean, the beauty in science is... um being wrong. So those, those are just some of my thoughts on, I'm sure we'll talk a lot about the deception campaigns the fossil fuel industry is currently propagating, but um, would you mind giving me a broad overview of how their, their in, the industry actually works in America? And do you think that these, these individuals who are either at the top of the company or are in middle management, how do they really feel about what they're doing? Do you think they actually don't care at all? Or are they just kind of there's, again, that other study, the Milgram experiment, where a guy with a lab coat tells you what to do and then you don't feel bad about it. Is that going on? I just wanted to get all your thoughts on the, how the industry works in general. Yeah. So uh, um, uh, there are, I mean, within corporations, it, there, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated structure, right? So a, a, a corporation in the U.S. is... is chartered in the name of people of a particular state. Um, and, you know, they're actually supposed to serve a, a public purpose. Um, there it's, it's not something that is kind of monitored and, um, uh, enforced in the way that, that corporations have evolved. Um, and, you know, instead we've seen corporations claim, for example, free speech rights and, and, you know, looking at decisions like Citizens United in, in 2010, which, you know, which, um, allows, uh, uh, allows unlimited election spending. Right. And, and, um, so I think there's, there's, um, you know, there, there is, I mean, these entities, uh, and corporate entities have, have gained, um, a lot of power and influence and, and decisions that are made inside corporate boardrooms affect the health and lives of, of people all over the world. Um, and the decision makers are, you know, certainly not representative of uh, communities that are on the fence line of, of fossil fuel production or um, the indigenous communities whose water and, and land is being fouled by by pipelines that are transporting uh, oil and gas, for example. Um, so, you know, we have the the um, decision makers and the corporate management who are, you know, rewarded for short term gains. There's very little in the way that uh, that our our stock market works that is. Um, that's tied to, to longer term impacts. Um, so that's a, you know, that's a structural issue. And then you have, you know, investors, which I think a lot of people might hear the term, you know, hear about investors and think, well, that's not, you know, that's not me. And, and for many people are excluded and the stock market is, is certainly not representative of the whole breadth of our country or, or the world. And at the same time, people who are um, 
you know, who are fortunate enough to have some retirement savings put away do have a stake in decisions that are made by these these companies. And so the and the interests of, you know, for example, public pension funds are much more long term really than than those of of the CEOs of of the company. And so um so I, I think you know, it's important. I mean, as as a as a corporate accountability campaigner, you know, I've thought a lot over the years about both um, individuals who are in those boardrooms making those decisions, and uh, you know, that both the the executives who want to be seen in their communities as responsible business leaders, and and there's and are often really insulated from the from the impacts of those of the decisions that they make, and um, so how we bring those impacts home to them in in ways that that uh, will will change how they think about um, how they think about issues like climate change is is really important. Um, and, you know, at the same time, really thinking about, and, and I think we've seen a real, um, a real uptick in the use of investor power. I mean, in, until 2017, for example, no climate change resolution, shareholder resolution had ever gained a majority among ExxonMobil investors. And that year, a proposal to that that the company simply report to shareholders about what policies that are aligned with the Paris Agreement would mean for the company's business, uh, won by a two to one majority. And that that sort of opened the floodgates for a lot more um, a lot more majority votes at fossil fuel companies. You know, currently calling on them to actually align their businesses and set set targets that are aligned with the goal of keeping global temperature increase to one and a half degrees Celsius. Um, and also calling on them to, you know, as a, from a matter of, of corporate governance to uh, disclose about disclose their their lobbying and explain how that is actually aligned with with um, positions that they, you know, purport to to hold. So, and of course, uh, you know, last year, um, one of the in one of the most stunning rebukes really to the the way that these um corporations have dragged their own feet and blocked action um investors came together led by an upstart um hedge fund called engine number no. 1 to oust three ExxonMobil directors um and you know put three people into into top seats at that company um out of impatience about how Exxon is um, is is positioning itself for the energy transition, it's ve- that's a very interesting idea because um, there's there's no doubt that the money moves the decisions, and if you can get the money to be in favor of helping the people, I mean that's kind of what my whole business is about it's about getting money into the hands of people who are going to do the good work or if you can take the people who have the money and put them in the position to to do the good work that that'll work the the same way um 
One thing I did want to say is, is if you're running a giant multinational corporation, it is impossible for you to understand the effects of, of what your business is doing on the entire planet or on the, not the whole planet, on the, the local communities that are being impacted by your decisions. Because at the end of the day, at the top of the company, you're, you are looking at everything as numbers, as revenues, as profits, as potential for growth. And I mean, our human brain is wired to live in communities of 150 people. I talk about this all the time. There's no way for them to understand what it's like on the ground level. But uh, I'm curious what, what you've learned from working with these large corporations and trying to get them to care more about the, the environment. Do you find that leadership in these organizations has a general respect for the scientific community broadly? Because I'll tell you, if someone from the outside came into me and I was running a giant company and they started telling me what to do and how I should run my business, I wouldn't care in the slightest. So I'm wondering how these uh, these heads of these companies react to people from the outside kind of trying to guide them how to make their decisions. Yeah, well, I think that that is more, um, they have been, pushed into a position of paying lip service to um, to the climate to the Paris climate agreement to the um, importance of achieving globally net zero emissions by 2050 so you know ensuring that that the that um, we are to stabilize the the climate um, and keep temperature increase to one and a half degrees above pre-industrial levels. Um, that's what science says is is necessary. So, I would say they've been, you know, dragged into publicly accepting the science and uh, science that that they're that we now know their executives were advised about decades ago, right? I mean, I think especially, um, so, you know, the American Petroleum Institute and its its members knew by the mid-60s, and that includes all of these major oil and gas companies. And of course, Exxon's own scientists were saying that, that a, a transition would be, would be needed from fossil fuels, from fossil fuels as our energy supply um, in the late 70s and, and 80s. So um, so uh, the, the real challenge at this point is pressing the, the companies, you know, the decision makers within the companies and the companies themselves um, to back up their words with meaningful actions. And I think that's where we still see a disconnect. So you know, as one key example, and you may have heard um, back in January that Exxon Mobil pledged, you know, made a made a net zero pledge, um, and was late to that party. Um, most of the European oil and gas companies have have pledged to achieve net zero by by twenty fifty. You know, a couple years ago, um, but. ExxonMobil's pledge only relates to its operational emissions. And for most oil and gas companies, um, 80 to 90% of their emissions, and in Exxon's case, about 85% come from burning their oil and gas products exactly as the company intends them to be used. So, By consumers. 
by consumers. Um, but this sort of, a, the, you know, I mean, it would be, it would, it's akin to a tobacco company saying, yeah, you know, we made those cigarettes and sold them, but we, we didn't, we didn't know people were going to smoke them. Um, you know, that's on them. <laughs> um, so the, so the, the, or we don't smoke know, them. Right. Right. So that, you know, the refusal to, to take full responsibility for, for the impacts of their products is, I mean, that goes against the, the science. Um, and similarly, the, uh, the, the misalignment of um, how, they, how they lobby and how they communicate in public. Um, you know, if, you're, if you are on social media or getting advertisements on, on television, it, you know, you, you would be, um, it would be reasonable for you to think that ExxonMobil or, or Chevron was a renewable energy company based on what they project to the world. Um, you know, but the reality is as of 2020, the International Energy Agency looked at investments by the oil and gas companies into uh, low carbon versus oil and gas. And it was across the board about 1%. And there've been some increases since then, but it's still a, you know, it's still a drop in the bucket um, that these companies are actually putting into, uh, into the low carbon future. Um, and, you know, in another famous uh, disconnect, we, a lot of us probably saw the Exxon, now former ExxonMobil lobbyist last summer um, in a, in an, uh, in an expose in a video, you know, revealing that um, ExxonMobil likes to talk about a carbon tax because it's a good talking point um, and that the company will hide behind trade associations like the American Petroleum Institute and let them be the whipping boys for the, the company. So, you know, talking, still talking out of both sides of their mouths and, and coming back to this theme of, of, um, of, you know, in investors and and their um, how they sh how they their interests are not always represented by those who are making decisions. I mean, it's a it's you know if they're taking so the the money of, uh, of of people invested in public pension funds, teachers, firefighters, and the like, and using that to lobby against positions that they say they support. I mean, that's a that's a that's a corporate governance issue. It's it's I mean, it has climate impacts, but it's really um, it's really misconduct at the at the corporate level. Well, it's it's obvious someone like a company like Exxon, they're they're going to go under. I mean, because if they, they really don't care, obviously, and um, if they don't um, begin to see themselves or not, it's they're going to go under. Um, if they don't see themselves as in the energy industry, if they only see themselves as in the oil and gas industry, it's like seeing yourself in the horse industry rather than seeing yourself in the transportation industry. If you don't have the vision to be able to see that the market's going to change and consumers are going to want different things, I can tell you right now, my age demographic, 
we do not care about oil or gas. Like we don't need a, a gas powered house or vehicle. We want a nice place to live that doesn't destroy the planet. So they, yeah, they won't, they won't last if they can't um, innovate. And that's just a, t- a typical business thing. Um, I'm wondering how you specifically work with corporations to encourage accountability to these, you know, really lofty emissions reduction goals that we have to stay below 1.5 degrees of warming. Yeah, so um, a big part of sorry about that. Um, so no part of part of what we do is um, is really do do research. Um, you know, both research into the um, the way that these companies continue to spread disinformation, kind of watchdogging their their public statements and truth testing those public statements. Um, and then continuing to develop the the scientific research that is um, relevant to society's consideration of the the responsibility of of these corporations for climate change and and climate impacts. Um, and so, you know, so we bring that we bring that information out into the public domain. We bring it directly to corporate decision makers. Um, I mean, one of the, um, one of the first projects that I did when I came on board with the union of concerned scientists was a climate accountability scorecard where we took a set of, uh, expectations, you know, how should a fossil fuel company operate in a carbon constrained world. Um, So, you know, they should renounce disinformation, they should align their business with the with with climate constraints, they should actually support fair and effective climate policies and disclose in, you know, in ways that that are that make sense to the public and policymakers that are their climate risks and opportunities, and they should pay their share of the costs of climate damages and and adaptation. And so we translated those expectations into a a scorecard and, and, you know, engaged directly with with the companies about our findings. And of course, in 2016, and again, in 2018, um, you know, we've, we found that, that none of these major oil and gas companies are, are, are doing enough um, to be, to meet these, you know, sort of basic societal expectations um, of responsible corporate action in a, in a carbon constrained world. We also, you know, we provide the, our information and research to shareholders and investors to help them understand the issues. We provide our information to um to members of Congress, and you know, folks may know that the House Oversight Committee is engaged in an investigation of fossil fuel industry disinformation right now. Um, they called the CEOs of the BP, Chevron, ExxonMobil, and Shell, as well as two major trade associations, American Petroleum Institute and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, before a hearing in October. Um, and confronted them with the evidence of their past and ongoing disinformation. And, you know, one of the, one of the important things that came out of that was that given the opportunity to, to say that they would ensure that corporate funds are not used to spread disinformation or try to block 
climate action, none of the four CEOs would would make that commitment. Um, so that is, you know, it's really important that that investigation be pursued to the fullest extent of the of congressional powers. They've issued subpoenas um, to the companies and trade associations because the answers were not sufficient. Um, so, you know, that's an area where the where the research that we've done specifically on the fossil fuel companies, but also, you know, on on climate change is is important for our policymakers. Um, and just another way, this is this um, is certainly getting the attention of leaders of these companies. There is a rising tide of climate uh, damages and consumer protection litigation from dozens of communities and, and states across the U.S. Um, more than more than two dozen at this point have um, sued companies, including ExxonMobil and, and the other oil and gas majors um, over the, you know, the, the costs that communities are incurring um, to address uh, climate related damages and to prepare for impacts in the future um, and also over the the ongoing deception campaigns and how how consumers have been um, you know ha- have been misled by the by the way that these companies communicate about about climate impacts I mean you said um, you said that uh, oh wait a minute um, I say a lot of things. You said a lot of things. Yeah, I was. I was <laughs> gonna go. Um, I was gonna go off of, of one of your uh, comments. Oh, about the, um, you know these 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 companies do a bait and switch, really, where they say, you know, people want our energy products, and and you said, yeah, I want energy. Uh, you know, I think if if all of us had a real choice of clean renewable energy, you know, that's, that's what we would want, but they, these companies have not, they've, they've really helped to, to rig the system so that, so that we don't have as much choice as we ought to have at this point. Um, and, uh, and, you know, that's true also in the way that they, um, you know, they, they project, um, it's sort of a, a a dual challenge for the world between you know people in um, in lower income countries having access to energy and achieving climate goals, which is a you know it's a false dichotomy. And it's a it's a sad thing too because the idea of choice in general is almost like the ultimate gift of humanity. Like you wake up and that's why we love freedom so much in this country. You're able to go out and you can really do anything with your day, whether you believe it or not. Um, you really wake up and you have a choice every single day. I always try to tell people that. And back on um, disinformation, if you're a, a corporate influencer and you have a lot of money to throw at getting a narrative out, I mean, they love disinformation if it's going to feed their narrative and make them more successful and propagate their their desires into the world. So you got to be weary of that stuff. When you're listening to anyone, you got to think about what is their intention? What are they looking to achieve? And that's why um, I always love to begin these podcasts by asking someone about their background and how they got to be doing what they're doing so you can kind of see the way they think about it and how they got to be to be in the position they're in now and i think that's really important 
Um, I'm wondering what you think about how much of the resolution of these issues um, lies in policy versus like good economics and what you would say to more conservative environmentalists who are less interested in policy and more interested in economic solutions. And then me personally, of course, I'm a huge advocate of citizen climate lobbies um, proposal, which is a nonpartisan policy. It's basically the only piece of policy I really ever talk about on this show because it's 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 vested in or it's based on economics. It's to put a price on a currently unpriced on ex, uh, externality of carbon. I just wanted to chat with you about this. Yeah. So um, so I so the we we certainly need, um, you know, public policies on climate and clean energy and the, you know, the, the Biden administration's pledge to cut U.S. emissions by 50 to 52 percent by by 2030 and, you know, in line with uh, helping to limit the worst effects of, of climate change um, has, you know, was backed by the Build Back Better proposal um, that includes a number of the of the key policies. Um, you know, I think what what we're seeing is entities like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce continuing to oppose the measures that are necessary. And so um, so removing the fossil fuel companies and their surrogates, their representatives as an obstacle to climate and energy policy is a, is a key step that, that we need to take. And that's why um, you know, it, it's so important to um, continue to both leverage research and public exposure um, and and really, um, you know, undercut the, the social license of these companies so that they will not be able to wield so much negative influence in in public policy decision making. Um, so, and, you know, and part of that influence is um, that, the you know, for such a long time, these companies have privatized the profits associated with oil, you know, with the, with the fossil fuel industry while socializing the costs. And so measures such as, um, such as litigation that really, you know, bring that, that, that will help to force, um, the internalization of of those costs and help to um, make the you know make the make the market operate in a way that 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 recognizes um, yeah th- you know that 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 allows um, continued growth in, in competitiveness of um, renewable energy sources, which, you know, even with the amount of subsidies that we provide to fossil fuels are, 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 are continuing to, to, um, to take increasing share of, of the, the markets. Um, so I, those are, so I think that there, I mean, it's, it's, it's really, we got to do we got to do all of it at this point right. um and you know unfortunately for too long the the best policies haven't really had a chance to advance because of the disinformation deception and obstruction um by this industry that has seen itself as a fossil fuel industry as opposed to an energy industry um 
Yeah, that, and that's a good point to make. And one thing I want to say, I was trying to look up the actual numbers, but I'll just make it up off the top of my head. Like, for example, it's going to be pretty close. Like in 2020, fossil fuel companies spent $86 million lobbying the government. Um, if everyone sold, the, if like a really small percentage of people sold their house with climate change realty, we could donate $90 million to support citizens' climate lobby to lobby for reasonable climate policy. It was like really small numbers. I think it was like, one like one tenth of one percent of home buyers could generate 90 million dollars just through my model and that's one example so i was yeah i was one when you said we need to remove the the barriers that the fossil fuel companies are creating or remove them from it i was like do we really even need to remove them or do we need to become bigger than them because it's like do we need to have a, a a policy or a system that comes in and pokes them and pulls them out or can you become the big kid on the block and be like hey i'm the solar companies like we we run stuff now which could then lead to issues uh, of its own so those are just some of my thoughts on that um would you mind telling me about some of the the bigger events that you think are happening in the climate space in 2022 what kind of campaigns are going on to continue to push this um saving the planet uh necessary actions forward yeah, I mean, I'm definitely inspired by the youth and indigenous-led climate movement, and uh, you know, people out there who are are taking it to the streets. Uh, you know, increasing pressure on, for example, the the banks that that finance fossil fuel expansion. Morgan Chase. Yeah. Um, so and so I know there's there's stepped up efforts in in that arena um you know we we were with uh clean creatives part of um getting a, a scientist sign-on letter with 450 scientists to the pr companies calling on them you know not to be uh, not to be complicit in the in spreading disinformation and deception for for fossil fuel producers. So I think, you know, driving a wedge between the the fossil fuel companies and um, certainly their political backers, but also their their business partners like the banks and the PR agencies is a really important frontier. Um, and the the work um you know def- the the work um of people on the on the fence lines and the front lines really um, drawing attention to the inequitable impacts of climate change to the harms that that people face from fossil fuel production um, you know at the at the community level the the um, the pollution of our air and water um, is also just part of what will help to drive this change. So, um, so all of that. And uh, as I mentioned, and as you know, UCS's work with our with our uh, fossil fuel accountability campaign and our science hub for climate litigation, you know, we are increasingly helping to connect scientists working on both physical science and social science with legal experts and practitioners who are building strong cases to hold the fossil fuel companies accountable for their for their actions and that it there's just a a a, a really significant wave of litigation um both both 
on the fossil fuel companies and on uh, and on governments related to related to climate change in the U.S. and around the world um, that really can help to to shift the shift the calculus um, and drive drive change um, and, and change that's so urgently needed. Very urgently needed. And Kathy, first off, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the show, of course. But more so, I want to thank you for dedicating your career to trying to make this planet more safe and livable for everyone, for all future generations. The work that you focused on, I think, is absolutely essential. So thank you for that. And I found the data. Uh, oil and gas companies spent $76 million lobbying the government in 2020. If, w- if one-third of 1%, not of buyers and sellers, of just people who bought houses use my, my company to find their agent, we could have donated more than $90 million. So there's a, there is a really – it's very and that's just one way to beat out these companies. There's so many other ways. People just need to mobilize that social science is, is, is absolutely essential. So thank you for coming on the show. Any last pieces of advice is for young folks who are passionate about building a better world? Dive in and and uh, do it and push the envelope and uh, challenge you know challenge us folks who've been at this for for decades to continue to innovate and um, and really uh, accelerate progress. I think that's it's so important that um, you know young people light of a fire under people who are in decision making roles and and just constantly stress the the urgency of action. And it's not just for the it's not just for the future. It is for the future, but it's it's for today. We're feeling it today. Yeah. You can always do it better. We can always be better. No, no doubt about that. Kathy, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Ethan. You're very welcome. All right, everybody. We'll see you. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrboulder.com today.